The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Running from Grace, the Gospel According to Jonah. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Jonah 3, 1 through 5, 10, and 4, 1 through 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are in Jonah chapter 4. If you are with us, uh, there's Bible spread out through, uh, through the chairs so you can find those. Uh, you can also open up your app to Jonah chapter 4. If you have a Sacred City app uh, or the YouVersion Bible app, you can follow along with us. Um, it's important at, at Sacred City that you guys follow along in your Bibles. Um, I want you to see that everything that I'm kind of getting, I'm getting from the Bible. I want to help you guys be able to study the Bible um, in the future, and I want you to have a love for the Word of God and not just, you know, the opinions of a preacher. The opinions of a preacher are worth about two cents, right? And, but the opinions of God are worth our life, right? They're, they're worth the very uh, lifeblood of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go ahead, as I, once I roll my sleeves up here because I'm a little warm, we're going to jump into this. Now, John Calvin has famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. Human heart is an idol factory. We take good things from God and we turn them into God things. And when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And what happens is we take these good things, these created things, and we worship them. We look to them to find fulfillment in life. We depend upon them for our happiness. If I get that thing, then I'll finally be happy. And we do that 
Jonah shows us in chapter 2, verse 8, unbeknownst to us, when we worship idols or we pay attention to vain idols, we forsake the hope of steadfast love, or another translation says, we forsake grace, okay? Because when we worship an idol and not the true God, the true God is the only God in all of creation that actually gives grace, that actually relates to humans on the basis of grace and not their own performance, okay? Now, most of the time, we're not aware of this. Most of the time, we don't know that we're doing this. Very few of us have these little wooden idols at home, right, that we bow down to and worship. Oh, what's that? Oh, that's my idol, right? Most of us don't do that. So a lot of times when we hear language like, oh, or confess an idolatry, or we hear language of idolatry or the worship of idols, we're like, geez, I'm really glad I'm not that guy. People really worship idols? Now, as you come to understand the Bible, and it's specifically, I know very few of you are you know, reading Ezekiel, right, in your daily devotions more than likely. But in the book of Ezekiel, the author, the prophet writes that the idols have, have entered their heart. He talks about the idols of the heart. And once you understand that idolatry isn't actually, doesn't have to actually be things, like you worship your actual, you worship your car, or you worship your TV, or you worship your sports team. It can be, but idolatry is also in the heart. Once you realize that, you begin to see, oh crap, I am that guy. Like I, I am that. There are things in my heart that are more important to me than God. That currently, you are right now bowing down to some idol in your life, and listen. That's why you get anxious. That's why you get fearful. That's why you get angry. That's why you get stressed out, and that's why you get in despair and despondent. Do you hear that? It's your idolatry. Now, let me show you. Let's, let's just do it like this. If you broke the Bible up into four chapters the whole Bible, into four big chapters, you would get something like this. Creation, chapter 1, fall, chapter 2, redemption, chapter 3, and then new creation, chapter 4, okay? Here we go. Let me, go, let me break it down really quick. Number one, creation, chapter 1 of the Bible, creation. God is the uncreated creator, right? He's the reason for everything. He's the meaning behind it all. He's the source of all joy, of all comfort, of all peace, of all satisfaction. God created it all, so he's the source of it all, so in him you find everything that you need, okay? Everything was created by him for his own glory. That's number one. Two, the fall. Adam and Eve, right? The first of mankind rebelled from God's righteous rule and his fatherly care, and they decided, I'm gonna strike out on my own, right? God you know, he's got everything. I don't really think he does. I'm going to go see if I can find something out there to make me happy. I'm going to find meaning for our existence outside and away from God. And obviously, that went really bad for them, right? They were punished and cursed for their cosmic treason. And all of creation was cursed along with it. So that's step one, creation. Step two, the fall. Step three, redemption. And we see um, 
glimpses of redemption or we see signs of redemption or shadows of redemption all through the Old Testament with the temple and the sacrificial system. And we see signs of it all through the Old Testament. But then we, we get, really get redemption in 3D, redemption in HD, when Jesus Christ comes down in the, in the womb of a woman and is born of a baby. Right? That God, in Adam, at Adam and Eve, he didn't just curse all of creation for Adam and Eve's rebellion. He also, at the same time, promised to send a man who would fix everything, who would redeem everything, who would crush the head of the serpent to bring people and creation back into a right relationship with him, excuse me, and with each other. That redeemer came thousands of years later in Jesus Christ, and he is the one who will save all of creation and bring about the fourth and final chapter if you are a Christian. Well, it doesn't even matter if you're not a Christian because this is going to happen. The Redeemer came, and he the Redeemer came, and he redeemed his people, and he redeemed, redeemed creation. So the fourth chapter will happen, and that fourth chapter is the new creation. Not just heaven, but the new creation. This is the new heavens and the new earth. Because of Jesus' perfect life and his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead in the place of Adam and Eve and all of those who fall short in sin and all of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus is making all things new right now. He's at work. He's making our city new right now. He's making our world new right now. Jesus is making all things new, and it's going to be perfect in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus right now is ushering his people and all of creation into a new eternity where everything will be as it should be, peace. What, everything we look for, everything we want, prosperity, health, laughter, joy, Alabama football, day after day of increasing love, right? I don't know, that just slips in somehow, sometimes. Day after day of increasing love and knowledge of God. I hope that doesn't cheapen my sermons. I apologize, so... In heaven, increasing happiness day after day after day. In the new creations, in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we're moving. Now, but listen, this is what's interesting. That's the story of the Bible. Things were created perfect by a perfect creator. We've rebelled from that perfect creator. The only one who can fix us and fix all of creation is the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He's the only Savior, okay? And because he saves perfectly, he's ushering in a perfect humanity, and he's ushering a perfect eternity in the new heavens and new earth. That's the story of the Bible. And what's interesting, I think that's the best story that's ever been told. It's what all of our stories, all of our stories should be. And it's what they could be if and when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Redeemer. Now, what does that mean? No matter how bad things have been in your life, no matter how dark, no matter how abusive, no matter how despondent that you've been, in Christ, you will always have a glorious future awaiting you in the new heavens and new earth, no matter how dark it gets right now. In the new heavens and new earth, through Christ, everything we look for is coming. Everything we look for. Now, listen. When I say that story, if you want to be in, if you want that story to be your story, 
then you need to be in Christ. And what do I mean by that? See, every single person, their story follows this, at least in some parts. Creation, everyone has their beginning, right? Every human being has their beginning. We all came from our mother's womb, our father's seed, right? In the beginning, it was good. We're a baby, no problems, right? We're born, it's good. But then every single one of us, see, that's creation. Every single one of us have our fall, don't we? Every single one of us wake up one day, sometime in our life, and we realize at this moment, things are not good. Some of you, it was right away, right? Something is broken. Immediately, you realize my parents never got married or my parents were divorced, right? Something's not good. Something's broken. This isn't good. That's the fall. Maybe you took you a few years, right? Oh, I, all of a sudden, I realized I'm not as good at sports as my peers are, Right? Took a few dodgeballs to the face to figure that one out, right? But you wake up and realize, I'm not good at this. Or you wake up and realize, these girls are prettier than I am. Things go bad. You realize there's a fall. There's a turn. And this is where we see, as John Calvin says, the idol factory of the human heart enter the picture. See, it's at chapter 3, redemption. What will fix my fall? What will fix, when I realize things are broken, what's going to fix that? What's going to redeem that? What's going to make that good again or make me good again? What will deliver me from my problems? Most of us, first thing in our lives, we don't turn to Jesus as our redeemer, right? I don't feel pretty enough. I don't feel smart enough. I don't feel good enough. Jesus, I thank you that you're my righteousness, Jesus, I thank you that you were good enough and you were smart enough and you rejected all those ways we classify people and you came and you were and you really said that people turned their face from you. You were so ugly when you were beaten. I thank you that you turned from that. We don't do that, right? We don't trust Jesus for our redemption most of the time right away. What do we do? I'm not pretty enough, so my redeemer will now be I need the right clothes, I need the right accessories, I need to make sure my hair is done up right. Right? I'll trust in my work, my effort to make me good enough. That will fix me. I'm not athletic enough. Okay, here's the plan. Some coach pulls you off to the side. <laughs> he says this, right? Or you, basically, you got to work twice as hard as that guy. You're not as talented. You're not as athletic. You haven't been blessed as much with athletic gifts. you got to outwork that guy. It's the Rudy syndrome, right? So you say, I'm not athletic enough. I'll work twice as hard as the other guys, and I'm going to prove that I'm good enough. I'm going to prove that I'm better than that guy. Or you say, I don't feel loved. My dad left me at a young age, so now you do whatever's necessary to feel love for a man. I'm not happy with the way my life is going. I don't feel fulfilled. So what do I do? I begin spending hours a day in a virtual world of video games where I can conquer, and I feel good. Right? Or I spend hours a day with a virtual woman or a virtual man and internet pornography. So I feel some I feel better about my life. False savior, false redeemer. Listen, that is idolatry. That's what it is. It's a substitute savior. It's a different way to go about finding redemption. Something other than Jesus that promises to fix what's wrong with you. But as theologian Chris Wright says. False gods never fail to fail. False 
saviors never fail to fail. Jesus is the only God who can save us from what's really wrong with us and can give us what we all want, and that's the new creation. Your work, your effort, your attempts to save yourself will never get you, it'll never usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So what we're going to see today, we're going to talk, how do you find out if you're trusting in a substitute Savior? And this is going to be hopefully eye-opening for some of you because some of you walk in here and you, you say, I trust in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I follow God. I'm totally not doing that. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask you, you need to think about it because I guarantee you there's not, if you know the human heart, there's not one person in this room who's not currently trusting in a substitute Savior right now for some peace, joy, fulfillment in their life right now that should only be found in Christ, but you're going to something else. Right now, every single person in this room is doing it. Some of us more than others, but we're all doing it, and we all need to be able to see it. So how, how can we find out when and how we're trusting in a substitute Savior? We're going to look at Jonah. Jonah's going to give us a couple great, of really great diagnostic tools for us to check our hearts for idols, and I'm going to just, I'll give you two things, and I'll just let you know. Number one, it's anger, and number two, it's despair. And it's really, I could really combine those, and I could say, when your anger leads to despair, you know you're trusting in an idol for something that can only be found in Jesus. Now, let's get into this. Look at verse four, or chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, what's going on? If you've been tra- tracking with us over the last four chapters, God came to Jonah. He had a special mission to Jonah. He says, Jonah, I want you to go to these Ninevites. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the biggest, baddest country of, um, at the time, and the biggest, baddest city at the time, modern day, Mosul and Iraq. Jonah, go to your enemy, go to your sworn enemy, and, and really preach the gospel to them. Jonah says, no way, God, I can't handle that. Short circuits, he goes in the opposite direction. God sends a whale, God sends a storm, God uh, swallows him up, God spits him out. God comes to him again, says, the word of the Lord came a second time, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, fine, I'll go, right? I'll go to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches the worst gospel sermon of all time, right? In a few days, God's going to destroy you all. Deuces. He walks out of the city. And God does what only God can do, and he changes human hearts in the moment. Sovereign grace happens in the moment. And they all cry. You know, they just throw ashes on their head, and they strip down to their loincloths. And they're crying out to God, saying, we repent. We repent. Don't kill us. You know, they're crying out for salvation. As Jonah is walking out the city, the whole city is crying out for for God to save them, right? And what does it say in chapter 4, verse 1? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, the Bible does not waste words, okay? And what that actually says in the Hebrew is Jonah found it exceedingly evil. The Ninevites' repentance, the grace that God gave to Nineveh, Jonah Jonah said this is exceedingly evil, and he was angry. Now, if you you know anything about uh, prophets in the Old Testament, it's the job you don't want to have. 
Some of them walked around naked, all right? They had to walk around naked. Most of them, their job looked like, thus saith the Lord, and they're dodging stuff, right? Like, everyone hated what they had to say, right? Their job was just horrible. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, right? Just imagine preaching and everyone just going, shut up. No, we don't agree with what you're saying and just doing the exact opposite. That's, mo- that's really the, the office and job of a prophet. That's usually how it was met with. People said, you're si- or they would say, you're sinning. Uh, you need to turn from your sins. And the people just hated them and wanted to kill them and wanted to destroy them. Okay, so Jeremiah wept because his message was, un- they, did, they didn't listen, they didn't turn, they didn't repent. So they were carried off to Babylon, they were carried off in bondage, the people were. But here, we have one of the rare places uh, where a prophet is actually listened to, and they actually respond, and they, it's like, he wins. You know, and Jonah is, this is evil. Now, this doesn't even make sense to me. It's like me getting up here and going, gosh, dang it, people are coming. Why are you here? You want repentance? Oh, what is, thinking that's evil, like really thinking that's evil, right? Like this guy is upset that he's winning. We get upset when we lose, but Jonah, it's showing something here in his heart. He's actually, he's calling evil what God calls good. Going to be a, something important for us to see. Let's keep reading. So he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord. Okay, that's good. That's good. If you get angry, listen, anger is not sin, all right? Scripture says, be angry and do not sin. To get angry is not sin, okay? You get angry, pray to the Lord. That's, what you're, that's a good way to respond to your anger. Now let's see what else he does. And he prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord. Is not this what I said when I was in my country? Okay, stop. So we remember chapter one, right? He's in his country, right? He's in Israel. He's a Jew. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, that other wicked country, and I want you to preach grace, right? I want you to go give them the word of the Lord. And he's showing us his motives from chapter one, right? When I was back in country, this is what I said to you, God. All right, now look, here we go. This is what he's saying. I didn't want to go to Nineveh, and this is why. Is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why I ran from you, God. For I knew, this is hilarious, that you were a gracious God, and you're merciful, and you're slow to anger, and you're abounding in steadfast love, and you're relenting from disaster. So this is what he's saying. You want to know why I didn't go to Nineveh, why I ran to Tarshish? Because I knew you were gracious. I knew I'd go in there, and God's going to kill you all, and you wouldn't do it. Right? He's mad that God didn't smoke this whole town. Right? He knows. He knows about Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Moral, moralistic people, they love Sodom and Gomorrah. They pray for God, do it again. Do it again. Hit Vegas. Hit them. Washington, D.C., smoke them out, Lord. Smoke them out. Right? Moralistic people, they want to, all the bad people are right there. Get them. Right? The world would be a better place. Many of us might think of that about, about Mosul right now. Smoke them out. Burn them. Destroy them. Do what you want to do, Lord. And Jonah's like, but I knew he wouldn't. I knew he's gracious. 
gracious and slow to anger. Well, I can just, this is hilarious. Full of steadfast love. You love her. I don't want a loving God. I want a wrathful, vengeful, angry God who hates the people that I hate. That's the kind of God I want. You see this? And then look at this. He's not just angry. He's not just angry. Look at this right here. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. Okay? Anger is not a sin. But this is a whole nother level. This is the kind of anger that leads to despair. I'm angry enough to die. I'm so angry, I don't want to wake up in the morning. I'm so angry, I don't want to move forward in my life. I'm so angry at what you're doing and how you're doing it, God, that I don't want to get up in the morning and go about my day. Now, what does Jonah say? Now, this is, how angry is Jonah? Angry enough to die. This, his anger is diagnosing idolatry. Something other than God is at the center of his life. Listen, this is, and this is how you know it. Jonah's saying this. God, you got it wrong. How dare you? How dare you? And you, you know what he's really saying? I'd rather die. I don't want a God like you. I don't want to move forward in life. I'm not happy with the way you did things. I'm not happy with your plan in my life. I'm not happy with my circumstances. I'm not happy with the grace of God given to these type of people. I would rather die right now. Jonah would rather have a tribal God, a God for me and my friends only, a God for me and people like me. Jonah does not want, here it is, Jesus as his redeemer, Jonah doesn't want that. Jonah wants a a way around Jesus. Jonah wants some kind of different redeemer. Jonah doesn't want grace. He wants a God that will do things the way he wants, a God that he can manage and control and manipulate. And I like the way C.S. Lewis kind of, Jonah wants a safe God. Jonah wants a safe God. Now listen, in, in Chronicles of Narnia, if you know anything about Narnia, um, there's a little bit of allegory stuff going on that Aslan is a type of Jesus, right? Aslan is a type of Christ. And there's this chapter, or this, this paragraph in here, I want to read it, where the, the kids are about to meet Aslan for the first time. Okay? They're about to meet their Redeemer, the one who's going to sing, the one who's going to sing over all creation and everything's going to be made right again. Okay? They're about to meet him for the first time, and they don't know anything about him. And if you know anything about Aslan, he's actually a lion. They don't know that, but listen here. They're, they're, they're getting really nervous about meeting him, and this is what um, the beaver is going to say to them. <laughs> You'll understand when you see him. Oh, but shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is-, is, he- is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Then that you will, dearie, make no mistake said Mrs. Beaver. 
If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, of course he isn't safe, but he's, the, he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If your God is safe, that means if your God thinks like you, talks like you, acts like you, then you don't serve the real God. You serve a false God, the figment of your imagination. You've created the real God into your own image and shaped him into some little idol, the false God. See, God is sovereign. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. If God does not cross your will often, then more than likely you've tamed God into this idol. You've created a God into your image to meet your desires, to make you feel good and safe the way that you are. But that's not the true God. Now, it's interesting. There's a lot of um, research going around right now that says most Americans have done this exact thing. We've taken, taken the untamed lion of Scripture. We've taken God and Jesus, who's untamable, who's wild, and we can't contain him. We can do, he's in heaven, he does what he pleases. And we've tamed him to meet our moralistic, therapeutic deism that we kind of have. Okay? And listen what uh, one of these theologians, David Wells, says about our culture, about our churches. We have turned to a God, little g, that we can use rather than a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. Now he is a God for us and our satisfaction. We have come to assume that it must be like this in the church as well. And so listen to this. We transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. We imagine that he is benign, that he will acquiesce as we toy with his reality and co-opt with him in the promotion of our ventures and our careers. I want a God who serves my need. I want a God who will give me my best life right now. I want a God who will bless my business. I want a God who will do things my way. I want a God like Jonah who will, he's safe enough to do things the way I want him to do things. See? Our hearts are idol factories. We want to create gods into our image instead of serving the one and true God. We want to build our lives on something other than Jesus. Now, most of the time, I don't think we get a very clear picture of that. We go about our day. We have our devotion. We come to gathering. We go to missional community. We might not even see what's going on in our heart. We might not be able to diagnose the idolatry that's going on in our heart, but let me help us diagnose it this morning. I want you to think about this. What do you have in your life right now? That if it was taken from you, you would run from God. What do you have in your life right now that if it was taken from you, you would get so angry, angry enough to die. You would be in despair. If it was taken from you, you would lay in bed until noon. You would not want to roll over. You would not want to get up. You'd not want to go to work. You wouldn't want to take a shower. 
You wouldn't want to put on makeup. You wouldn't want to go out and see anybody. What do you have in your life right now that if it was taken from you, you would get angry enough to die? And I think if, you're, if you have any self-awareness, you've got something there. This is very interesting what we're about to read now. And I'm not going to be able to point out everything, but I'll get a good head start, and then we can hopefully jump on it next week. Listen, whatever that thing is that you said in your mind, it could be a thing, it could be a wife, it could be kids, it could be money, it could be, but it could also be an idolatry of the heart. It could be comfort, it could be security, it could be peace, it could be power, it could be control, it could be all these things. And what we're going to see is that when something comes between us and God, when something becomes our false or fake redeemer, our substitute savior, God, gracefully and thankfully, is now at war with that thing. He's not at war with us. He's at war with our idols. And But many people... We love that thing so much, it can feel like he's trying to take something from us, trying to destroy us, trying to hurt us. Let's see what it does in Jonah. Let's go here. Verse 4. And the Lord said, you do well to be angry. Now, this is just money, okay? If you've ever been in a missional community setting where we gospel one another, all right? God is about to gospel Jonah, okay? God does not... This is what a lot of moralistic people like to do. Jonah's doing some bad things, and they just want to point them out straight on. Oh, you ran from God, fool. Why are you mad? Or, I mean, not, not, that's a question, but you're angry. Stop being angry. Point it out. Condemn it. No, that's not what God does. God, God says, you do well to be angry, Jonah. How's that, how's that anger going for you? Are, are you mad? Why are you so angry? That's beginning to diagnose something for Jonah. Jonah needs to see it in himself. All right? <clears throat> Let's keep moving. Now, well, first off, let me just point out something that's obvious. Jonah is beginning to argue with God. Okay? Jonah's praying. God is speaking. God is answering him. And if you know anything about the story, like we mentioned before, God is the source of everything, right? God is the source of all meaning, all purpose, all joy, all happiness, right? So let's look at this. This is the key to understanding idolatry. Jonah is looking at the face of God, the source of all life and all hope and all happiness, and he's going, I'm not happy. I don't like the way you're doing things. I'm mad about this, angry enough to die. Think about that. You're thirsty. You're in the desert. You see a well. You walk up to the well. You look into the well. Beautiful, clear, sparkling water. And you go, I don't like the color of this well. I hate this well. Why did you give me this well? I don't like the, I want something different. I wanted Coke. Now, it sounds, it sounds ridiculous, but this is what's happening in this story. God is everything Jonah wants. God is everything Jonah needs. God has everything Jonah wants, and Jonah looks at him and going, I'm not happy. 
Jonah would rather have his way, his tribal God, his idols, than have true satisfaction, true comfort. And what you see what's going on here? God has come between. God is stepping in front of Jonah and his idol. God has placed himself in between, in front of Jonah and his idol, and Jonah gets mad, real mad. Look at this. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Okay, now listen to this. What's he doing? Jonah is running from God. He's running from the source of all things again. Did God tell him to leave the city? Now, this is so funny. Jonah, the city repents. Jonah washes out and he, sit, he makes a little booth and he's going to sit there and watch the show. Maybe he'll still smoke them out. I'm going to sit here and watch, see if God changes his mind. Now, what is this? Jonah leaves the source of all comfort. And he tries to find some comfort in a little booth he made in the desert. Listen, that's what idolatry is. You leave the comfort from the Almighty God and you go find comfort in your 401k. Oh, all those zeros, that'll make me feel safe. You leave satisfaction in God and you go, oh, yep, once I get that degree, then I'm going to really be somebody. People will look up, at, up to me and they'll respect me. You leave something, you leave the source of it all, and you go find it in some broken little booth. Let's see what happens. This is classic. See, and I, let me just say, so here we go. Jonah leaves the source of everything. He's going to go build a booth, and watch. God's going to step in front of it. He's going to cut his off. So you want to find your, you want to find your, idol, your, your idols, and you want to find your comfort in money? Watch God step in front of it. Watch God block it and see how you respond. And Jonah gets angry, angry enough to die. See, Jonah's, his ethnicity, his morality, his feelings of superiority over the Ninevites were more central to his identity as a person than his relationship with God. This is what he said. This is, if we could say it like this. Jonah was more Jew than Christian. Many of us can be more American than Christian. And it's funny, if Jonah could remember, or if Jonah really knew, or if Jonah really believed what he said he knew, if he really believed that, that God was sovereign, that God was gracious, that God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, then he would trust God no matter what he did. Because Jonah would know God is slow to anger. God is, God is gracious. God loves me. No matter what God is doing, he's got to be doing it good. He's got to be doing it for my good. God knows what's best. I can trust myself to him. Right? So if stuff's going on in his life that he doesn't like, the Ninevites are getting grace. Jonah, if he really believed what he said he believed, that God was gracious and slow to anger, then he could say, God, I trust you. God, I know. You have my best interest. You have the world's best interest. You have your best interest in mind. I can trust you no matter how my life is going, no matter what my bank account looks like, no matter what my boss says, no matter what my neighbor's doing, no matter what's going on in my family, I can trust you because you're sovereign and gracious and full of love. 
God steps in front of his idol. See, many of us, we think we're Christian. We're nice. We're moral. We're good people until God starts idol blocking us. God steps in front of what you really want, reputation, control. He steps in front of that, and then we get angry, angry enough to die. Now, for me, I have, I'll just say, one of my heart, I have a lot of them, but one of my heart idols is reputation. That I want other people to think highly of me. I want people to know how hardworking I am, how punctual and thoughtful I am. I want to know, and I, you know what? I just want people to think well of me. And I know there's many of you out there that are like that. But what we're seeing here in Jonah is that God is not okay with us serving idols. Idols will never fail to fail us. So God in his sovereign grace actually goes to war with our idols and he usually does that through a very normal everyday means, frustrating means. Like this, when I was in Omaha, God was beginning to break me. God was beginning to teach me about the idols of the heart and how the gospel could apply to the heart. And uh, I was addicted to approval and to a reputation even more than I am today, far more than I am today. And one of my assessors for my Acts 29 uh, church planning assessment was Bob Thune. And I was going out to do a residency with Bob in, um, in Omaha. And Bob said, hey, let's get together when you get out here and let's sit down and let's have a meeting. Well, I really respected Bob. Uh, he's, a, he's a man of just a depth of character, solid theology. He's just a great, great man. He's leading a great work there in Omaha. And I thought, yes, yeah, I want to meet with Bob, yeah. So I called Bob up, and I said, let's, let's meet. We set the date, set the time. We're all good to go. And, uh, and then we're in Omaha, and things were getting a little crazy for us in Omaha. And all of a sudden that day, I was at the coffee shop, and all of a sudden, ding, 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 my phone vibrated. And I looked down, and it said, 15 minutes meeting with Bob. And I went, <gasps> and I was all the way across town. And I was like, oh, crap, I'm going to be late. And, and you know, I'm just going to say it like this. Losers are late, okay? That's how I think. In my mind, that's how I used to think. If you're late, you're a bad planner. It's really pathetic. That's how I really thought in my head, right? Other people are late. I'm never late. I had, like, never been late, like, in years to a meeting. And I said, I think I can make it. Found the address, put it in my iPhone, bolted from the coffee shop. I'm flying. I'm in my truck, you know, weaving. I'm getting there. All of a sudden, I pull up to the thing, and it looks nothing like a church. Looks nothing like office building. And I'm looking down and I realize that I typed the address wrong. And I put the new address in and it weaves me another way. And I end up in this moment, right? It says 35 minutes to destination. And I go, yeah! I beat, I'm in my, by myself. Nobody sees me. And I'm beating the steering wheel. No! And then it's just the drive of shame. Not only was I late to the meeting, I was 45 minutes late to a meeting with a guy who's going to be my mentor. And I just knew he's judging me hard right now. He's judging me hard. He's looking down. This guy can't be a church planner. Can't even show up to a meeting on time. What's this guy? He probably doesn't, you know, respect my, uh, respect my time at all. And I'm just judging myself hard. 
and I'm just feeling full of shame, and I, walk, I just walk in. I'm angry enough to die. See, and Bob gave me a lot of grace. God was showing me that my identity was in what Bob thought of me. It was in my own performance that when my reputation was challenged, I just fell apart. I just lost it, right? I can't tell you the, the last time I did, had one of those, right? And it was in my truck. Nobody knew it. I could have just kept it down. No, you guys would have known I'm a psycho if I did. Hulk smash! That's what I felt like. That's what I felt like. Right? I just fell apart. But listen, here's what God was showing me. If my identity was in Christ, I was already a Christian. But if my identity was in Christ, that when my reputation was challenged, I would still be secure because my identity in Christ is absolutely secure. And when my identity is secure, I can do this. Admit my failures without them crushing me. Because you know what? In the gospel, when I look to redemption, the gospel tells me I'm already a failure. Did you know the gospel tells you that? If you, didn't, if you know the gospel tells you you're a failure, you don't understand the cross. The cross proves you're a failure. You can't save yourself. You can never be good enough. You can never be smart enough. You can never be on time enough. You can never be a solid enough leader or a good enough parent or a good enough spouse. You are a failure. The cross proves that, but at the same, same time, simultaneously, the other side of the cross, let's say, right? It says you are ridiculously loved. In the midst of your failure, you're loved. That Jesus goes to the cross willingly in love to gather us into his family. See, in that moment, I was, you know why I was so mad? I was so mad because I couldn't save myself. I was trusting in my ability. Okay, if I'm on time all the time, I'm a perfect leader. One of, the, one of the ways to be a great leader, be on time to every meeting. Actually, on time is 15 minutes early, right? And I, in that moment, my self-salvation project failed me. I was late, and because I was late, I was no longer a good leader. I was no longer a good man. I was no longer a church planning prospect. I was crushed, despondent, angry enough to die. Now, listen, you guys ever notice when you're late, you get every red light. This part, I think God might just find amusing. Kind of like Bruce Almighty, right? The show, like every, you're like, you're freak, you're starting, you know, he's pressing on an idol, maybe a control idol or a reputation idol like me, and you're late somewhere, and he's like, bink, bink, bink. He's pressing, he's boxing you in, he's cutting you off, he's stepping in front. He's stepping in between of you and your idol. He's idol blocking you. Now, this is just going to get funny. Let's keep reading. Now, the Lord God appointed, you should highlight that word. That's a sovereignty of God word. The Lord God appointed a plant. Now, let me just stop here. I kind of mentioned this thing called moralistic therapeutic deism. And we think there's this God out there that just does everything that we want and just kind of serves us. 
And he, he's really only there when we really need him. It's like a doctor you only go to when you're, when you're in, in need. And, and most of us live with this kind of deistic idea of God. What is a deistic idea of God? That God kind of winds up the universe, sits it on a shelf, and just sits back and lets it go. So plants grow without his involvement, and the sun goes, and the weather happens without his involvement, and the snow falls without his involvement. That is a deistic understanding of the world. That is not a theological understanding. That is not a God-centered understanding. That Jonathan Edwards actually believed that God told the sun every single morning, do it again, do it again, do it again. And in a sense, this story would kind of align with that, that, jo- that God speaks to a plant and goes, grow right there. And Jonah's out there in this little man-made booth trying to find his comfort away from God, and, all, and he's really hot, and God appoints this plant to come over top of Jonah, and look what happens. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now look, what a kind and gracious God, full of steadfast love and merciful your rebel runs away from the city. He's hoping to see a fireworks show, right? And he's out there mad at himself or mad at God, and he's hot, and he's thirsty, and God whoop, graciously gives him a little plant, a little shade. How, what a gracious and kind God. But what does Jonah do? So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, exceedingly glad. Now, that's the same words that he used in verse 1. You see this exceedingly. So this created thing comes up, and he goes, oh, I love this plant. I love the shade, right? Sipping back, he's got his margarita, got a shade. He's going to watch the show. God's going to smoke him out. Listen, what's interesting is it's not an evidence of grace, right? This should be a clear evidence of grace. We talk about having gospel eyes. God, I thank you for this thing you've created. I thank you for this common grace given to me. I thank you for this plant that you are the giver of all good things. We don't see that from Jonah. We see Jonah go back to a created thing. Oh, I love this plant. Now watch. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed. Underline that one again. God, this is awesome. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Now, God has appointed a plant, and now God has appointed a worm. This is crazy. The sovereign God of the universe is even in control of worms. He might even call them by name. Billy Worm, go ahead. Get it. Right? Speaks to a worm. The worm attacked. This is brilliant. I love this. This is phenomenal. This worm, so the plant is sent by God, then God sends a worm to kill the plant. And then he does what else? When the sun rose, God appointed, big words, a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Now, what's happening? Jonah was trying to find comfort by running away from God. That didn't work in the belly of a whale. That didn't work then. Now he's trying to find comfort out in the desert on his own, his little booth, that didn't work, so God gave him a little plant. Now I'm trying to find comfort in the plant. And then God's like, God is, I, this is God idol-blocking Jonah. This is God going after Jonah's idols. 
Jonah is so frustrated that God won't do things the way he wants him to do. God, why aren't you tame? God, why aren't you nice? God, why don't you do things the way I want you to do things? And God sends a worm, and God sends the sun, and God sends the heat, the hot wind to blow. God is taking away all the props that Jonah has to stand on. Every crutch that Jonah has, other than God himself, God is pulling out from under him. What's God wanting him to do? God's wanting him to look up at God, to go to the source of all comfort instead of going to these created things. How many of us, when things aren't going well for you, you run to some created thing? I have a friend who things aren't going well at home, having some difficulty with kids and with different things, so he runs to work and he spends more time at work. Why? Because he feels great at work. He feels like a conqueror at work. He feels like I can do my work and I dominate and I'm doing well at work. He goes to these other things to find comfort. Some of us, this is uh, the definition of escapism. Things aren't going well in our life, so we go to weed. We go to drugs. We go to find some comfort outside of God, outside of community. Things aren't going well in my life. I just go look at my bank account. Ah, Click refresh over and over. Right? We go to all these created things. Men, we go to hunting. Boys, we go to video games. Sorry, we go to video games. Right? I feel awesome. Every time I level up, I feel like a king. You're not. You're not. And God, this is what God's doing. God's getting in front of our idols, not to punish us. God isn't, this can look like punitive. This can look like God just in heaven going, I want to torture Jonah. You like that plant? Zap. You thirsty? Heat. Wind. He's not torturing. He's not trying just to take something out of Jonah's hands. He's trying to pry open Jonah's hands so he can fill them with himself, something far better. But Jonah, what? Jonah doesn't see it. I'm angry, and I'm angry enough to die. Look at verse 7 and 8. Or we, are, we just read that. But at the end of that, he says, it's better for me to die than to live. What's happening? God is taking away Jonah's idols. He's taking away his sense of security, his substitute savior. Friend, listen to me. Why do we beat on this idolatry thing so much? Because anything and everything except God in your life can be and will be taken from you. Your health could go in a second. Your strength could be gone tomorrow. One doctor's report away. Your marriage could go. One car accident away. Your kids could go. Everything except God that you build your life on could be taken from you in an instant. And God is showing Jonah that. Your house could burn up. Your car can break down. All, anything we could find our comfort in can be gone in a second. Idols never fail to fail. This is like Job-like. What happens when God begins to pluck those things from you? Do you say the Lord gives and the Lord taketh away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or do you say, I'm mad enough to die? I've served God for 10 years and now I don't have a raise or now I can't find a job or now my wife leaves me or now my kids get sick. I've served God for all this time and now he does this, I'm out of here. I'm angry enough to die. Does Jonah go, oh, 
Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I know he's the source of everything I need. God, I need your grace, Jesus. I know you're gracious. I need your grace. Did he go to God? Absolutely not. He's angry enough to die. And look what God does. He gospels Jonah again. But God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, this is how you know. Listen, this is how you know you're idle crazy. People in your mission community, people around you, they're asking you questions like this. How's that, how's that working out for you? How's this, I mean, do you feel like this is appropriate anger? Do you do well to be this angry? And what's he say? Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. See, the source of everything he needs is in front of him, and he says, I'm angry enough to die. You're not giving me what I want. You're not doing things the way that I want you to do things. Can I just tell you this? Our anger and our despair are like an alarm system that God has put in our heart to alert us that we're forgetting the gospel and we're looking to something other than Jesus to save us from our problems. When we're angry enough to die, when we're despair, it's an alarm system. Something's more important to you right now than the grace of God, than your Redeemer. When we get mad at God, when we don't like what he's doing in our lives, when we want to escape reality, Anything that you run to, if you're running from God, anything you run to, that's your God. It could be video games. It could be hunting. It could be Pinterest. Anything you run to. I, I, I don't feel good enough. I'm going to run to this thing. That thing becomes your God. And this is what happens in verse 10. God flips the script. He gospels Jonah. He flips the script on Jonah. He takes Jonah's anger he goes, oh, you're angry? You're so angry. You're angry enough to die about a plant. How about 10,000 people that you want me to kill? Whew. I love it. God never goes, stop being angry. He goes, oh, anger, good. Angry at the wrong thing. You're not angry about what makes me angry. See, this is about you and your plan. You want them to die, I want to give them grace. God flips the script on Jonah, chapter t- or verse 10. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and per- perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not live, then uh, do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now listen, Jonah's more upset about a plant that is idle in his life than about these people getting grace. And I think we can live that way. We can live in our own homes. We can live in our own neighborhoods more upset that God's not doing things the way we want him to do and, and totally forget about our neighbors, totally forget about our coworkers. Just, I, need me, I need you to help me raise kids, God. I got a whole lot of crazy in my house and I need help. Just forget about everybody else. But you know what? If we pull back from the story, this story is really a great uh, postmodern in- ending. It's, got a, it's just a postmodern narrative, this story. Now, what do I mean by postmodern? 
I told you about the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Four pieces, right? Beautiful. I think every good story that most of us uh, resonate with is like this. Things were good. Things go bad. Somebody's got to fix things, whether it's a superhero or whatever. He's got to fix things. And then what? Happily ever after, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Story of scripture. Story that makes meaning in our heart. But there's this kind of postmodern narrative that goes like this. Oh, God didn't create you. It was the Big Bang. It was evolution. So you're not created. You're just here. You come from nothing. And now you invent yourself. So who do you want to be? Find it on the internet and then be that person. You want to be male? Be male. You want to be female? Be female. If you want to be both somehow, go to the doctor, get that done. You can do whatever you want to be, who you ever want to be. You're not created, so you just create your own identity. Find your own redemption because you know what? This is all we have and to nothing we return. From nothing we came, we just existed. Molecules and energy and boom. We're here. We crawled out of the slime, right? We're here. Create your life however you want it and get, there's nothing left. So have you noticed these stories that come up that like end and just like everybody dies? Like there's no happily ever after at the end. It's perfect kind of postmodern ending. Funny thing, that's the way Jonah ends. We don't see another redemption story. Oh, you're in the desert. You're trying to find comfort in something other than God. You're mad that I'm giving grace to these people. And God says to him, oh, you're mad about the plant? How about the 120,000 people and the cattle? How about them? He drops the mic and walks off stage. The book closes. The credits roll. That's how this story ends. The good guy, who we think is the good guy, the hero fails. The good guy is exposed as a religious bigot, and then, bam, the credits roll. No redemption. No reconciliation. No restoration. No happily ever after. No new heavens and new earth. Now, I've never liked endings like that. I want things to be fixed in the end. I think we're all hardwired by God, right, for hope, to long for the new heavens and the new earth where everything will be made right. So tell me this, why would God, who wrote the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, why would God end a book like this? Why would God end a book like this? Now this is going to really cook your noodle. I think hopefully you already ha- your noodle's already been cooked and you're already kind of getting it because everything you were taught as a kid is a lie about Jonah, <laughs> right? Jonah is not the hero. We are not supposed to look at the book of Jonah and go, oh, have, has anyone ever been told John, Jonah chapter 4 in children's church? Has anyone been told this? Right? We get the first three chapters, Jonah disobeys, but then God gets him in a whale and spits him up. Then Jonah obeys. All right, kids, see you next week. How about Jonah 4, where Jonah goes, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I'm mad at you, God, mad enough to die. The hero fails. Why? We're not meant to look at this story, no, nor any story in the Old Testament, and go, oh, Oh, I know what I got to do. Oh, I need to be like Jonah. That's what I need to do. If I'm like Jonah, God will love me. If I'm like Jonah, I can overcome everything. If I'm like David, I can overcome my enemies. If I'm like, we're not meant to do that. Jonah is not the hero. If he was, that would teach us salvation by effort. 
That's religion. That's moralism. That is not Christianity. That's not the gospel. We're supposed to read this story and go, God is gracious. Jonah is an idolatrous fool just like me. And Jonah's only hope is the grace of God. And the only hope for me is the grace of God. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. God is merciful. God relents from his anger. That's my only hope. Jonah's a fool. Jonah runs to other things other than God for his satisfaction in life, just like me. And then we turn to, this, to the book of Matthew. And Jesus, very interestingly, Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is speech, speaking to these moralistic do-gooders, people like Jonah, the Pharisees, that's what he says. Verse 38, 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Look at this. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus finishes the story for us. We don't get it in Jonah. We don't get the happily ever after in Jonah. We don't get that new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus stands up speaking to religious people and he says, something greater than Jonah is here. That's what he says, pointing to himself. I'll give you the sign of the prophet Jonah, just like he was in three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. I'll be three days and three nights in the earth and then I'll be resurrected. See, Jonah isn't the hero of this story. Jesus is. Jesus is the better Jonah. What do I mean by that? Jesus didn't run from God's call to be a missionary. Jesus left his country and came willingly. Jesus didn't get thrown into the wrath of God like Jonah because of his own rebellion. Jesus walked into it willingly for us. Jesus didn't stand back and hope that those far from God would get what was coming to them. Jesus saw what was coming to us, the wrath of God, and Jesus got in between that for us. Jesus took the wrath for us. He took our place and took upon himself the punishment that we all deserve. So the book, the story of this, don't look to Jonah. Look to Jesus. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our savior. Like God sent Jonah to Nineveh. God sent the true and better Jonah to this earth from heaven so that we might be saved. And this salvation, guys, listen, it's not a once and done thing. Now, ultimately it is, right? Once you're saved, once you're in Christ, you're saved forever. But this believing the gospel is an every moment thing because these idols are, the idol factory of our heart is constantly want to play, place things in front of God. So we need to be consistently beating our idols to death, in a sense. We need to be consistently repenting of our idolatry and seeking the grace that can only be found through our Lord and Savior, Jesus. 
this morning, my questions are simple. Will you trust me? Will you turn from the idols of your heart and turn to the only Redeemer that can guarantee you, promise you, the new heavens and the new earth? The only one who can promise it. Jesus Christ. If you, if you and it's okay, if you're not, um, maybe you're not intuitive, I don't know, maybe you're like, I don't get it. I, I just don't think I serve idols. Talk to your wife. Talk to your husband. Be brave enough. Oh, religious one. Be brave enough to invite your missional community into that discussion. This is a perfect. When your anger pops up, what makes you angry? Angry enough to die. Diagnosing. Ask yourself, let your mission community ask me, why does that make you so angry? And it's going to be, you're going to go nuts. What do you mean, why does that make me angry? Obviously, look look what it is. And they're going to remind you, well, that happened to Jesus, and Jesus didn't respond that way. So it's not an automatic response. You're choosing something. You're choosing something other than Jesus as your Redeemer. And this is critical for us to see this process of faith and repentance, faith and repentance that we need to grow as Christians. Martin Luther said that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. Not just the moment, not just to become a Christian. The whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. So, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, this meal this is a covenant meal. This is a meal that's meant to remind us, for one. It's meant to remind us that we're all broken. We're so broken that the Son of God had to come and die for us. There's no way out for us. There was no other way. No way we could reach new heavens and new earth and enjoy God unless the Son of God came for us. But at the same time, we're so loved, Jesus did it willingly. Everything we're afraid of in life, Jesus took separation from God, ridicule from others. His reputation, what do they call him? What do they call him? They called him a friend of sinners. They called him a drunkard and a glutton. They called him the devil. And he, he took it. He lost his reputation. So he could give us a new identity of his. And we come this morning and we turn from those idols and we receive reminded of who we are and how solid it is. It's so solid he puts something in our hands and he puts something in our mouth. That's how solid it is. That's how real it is. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your radical grace. Thank you for being so much better to us than our idols. Father, I want to repent for putting things in front of you, reputation, comfort, control. But I'm kind of like Lucy. I, I want a God who's safe, and a God who does things my way. I pray that you would help us see that this morning.
and help us turn from that, that there's no true satisfaction, there's no true redemption in those gods. The only redemption is found in Jesus, the God we can't control, the God who's better than we think he is. You are the source of all good things. Let us come to the source this morning. Let us eat of your, in your body. Let us drink of your blood. Let us receive um, the grace that you promised for us in this communion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.